0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back. I'm your host, Patrick, and this is Not Adding Up. Today's case is going to be part two of the Oakland County Child Killer. And I have my co-host back along for part two.
1: Hey guys, this is Abby again. Um, I'm here to learn more about this horrific freaking case. And I'm excited to hear the rest of what Patrick has to say.
0: Before we get into talking about... The Oakland County Killer case. I wanted to take a quick second to talk about my last case which is unrelated. It, I did it in between because I felt like everybody needed a breather um, between these cases. So go and listen to episode 5, The Disappearance of Kaya Taylor and Veronica Diaz. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to a listener, Anna, for suggesting that case. It was really, really interesting to look into, and it's a shame that nothing has come from it so far, but hopefully within the next few months or years, we can get some resolution with it. Another thing I wanted to touch on was in the last episode, I misspoke, I think it was towards the end, but I was speaking about Jill Robinson's murder, and I Said that it was a suffocation. I said all of the four murders I was referring to last episode were suffocations, but that is incorrect. Joe Robinson was shot, which I did say earlier in the episode. I just misspoke at the end. Whenever I was editing it, it just like st- stuck out. So I wanted to clarify that.
1: Let's get into it.
0: With that being said, let's get into it. Abby is Yikes. ready. I don't think she's ready oh, though. Oh my lord. Before we get into new content, I want to give a recap. So in the last episode, we discussed six murders, four of which are directly connected to what we are uh, calling the Oakland County child killer case. These, um, there are some similarities between the cases, Abby, do you remember what those were?
1: Yeah, um, a lot of them lived in the same area. the bodies were dumped in public spaces, which is a very odd uh, fact for me that happened. Um, they were Definitely all, sticks out. They were all teenage kids, um, younger teenagers, boys and girls. Um, but it was just horrible. Just horrible.
0: <laughs> yeah, I kind of put you on the yeah. spot there to see uh, yeah. what you remembered. I was paying
1: attention, honey.
0: But, so, you're, yeah, you're pretty spot on. The only things were... So, the two cases that aren't connected were oh. actually the only teenagers. Okay. And the rest of the victims were just 10 oh, to 12. Oh, I remember
1: something else. That the bodies were really clean. Yes. That was so weird.
0: So, this isn't... Like, I wasn't even going to put this in the episode, but I feel like this is a good time to talk about it now. One of the main investigators of the case... Corey Williams, whenever he was talking about it, he said that he thought the media kind of overhyped that fact. But that's like the only place I could see that. And Corey Williams, I definitely, he is like, his word is solid. In this case, he put in a lot of work. And he is one of the reasons that we have a lot of the information that we do. Very committed. yeah. Yeah. So I, the fact that he said that sticks out to me. But nonetheless, they were cleaned definitely to the point of, like, no uh, screaming DNA evidence, which I don't think they really had that much uh, technology at the time, where they would be able to test it too extensively.
1: Now what year was this again?
0: So the murder started in 1776, and the last murder took place in March of 1977.
1: Okay, this is when forensics are finally getting
0: up Mm -hmm. and...
1: Yeah, they did not have that much back then.
0: (laughs) So some other uh, similarities between the cases that I didn't really mention in the last episode was two of the victims were abducted on a Sunday and two of them were abducted on a Wednesday, which is like maybe doesn't mean anything, but it's odd.
1: Well, that could mean something with a schedule for the killer.
0: Oh, yes. Like a
1: work schedule, a family family time. I don't know. That's weird.
0: Yeah, that is. I didn't even think about that. They were held captive for a period of time before they were killed. Right. So the final victim of the Oakland County child killer, Tim King, his family played a very large role in the investigation of this case. The reason I know as much about the King's role in the case is because one of my main sources for this uh, episode, or this series of episodes, is a novel um the snow killings by marnie keenan she wrote this novel the snow killings was also a common name for the oakland county child killer murders so that is that it's pertaining to this case
1: was it during winter
0: yes well yeah. Oh. the murders right in february march before christmas yeah,
1: yeah. okay
0: so it was. They were in. Uh, like I think I, they were all dumped on days where it had snowed. Yeah, that's sad. Keenan's novel is a plethora of resources for this case. It is amazing. Um, I think she lives in the area. She was also in the documentary, uh, that the Detroit media made on this. It's like a five-part docu-series that a media, uh, company made that is outside of Detroit. She. It seems like she was working. Pretty closely with the King family and like interviewing them because her, the insight she gives on their
1: close insight, yeah,
0: yeah, it's on their point of view is like very, uh, very educated and she knows a lot about how they're feeling and the she breaks down the timeline very well. Cool, but this doesn't all come until very later because Tim's mother, Marion, however, devastated she was at the fact that. This had happened. She was determined to pick herself up and continue raising her family of three with her husband. She wasn't gonna let this ruin her life. So her family honored her wishes until she passed at the age of 73 in 2004. They just kind of like, it was a, we didn't really talk about it. She didn't really keep up with the investigation. They just like, they didn't want to forget Tim but they wanted to forget the awful thing that had happened like they keep his memory alive but i like keep like what they knew and what the what was good alive
1: sure.
0: all of this is just kind of a side note but now we're gonna go back to 1977. Right. so it's like teleporting us back as i touched on tim was loved by all of his classmates and this was just like a like sweet some sweet points that i wanted to touch on but at his funeral over 600 people attended to say their goodbyes and condolences oh wow so he definitely was a big part of the community and at this point i'm sure some people probably just came that didn't know him very well but just wanted to pay their respects to the family
1: yeah there's always people that feel the need to pay their respects it
0: said the funeral had like a really big like media presence which was like kind of disgusting like they have no boundaries that's
1: annoying it's a kid like chill up
0: like, just report that it yeah. happened today at the least. And, like, I don't know, you don't have to handle with cameras. At the private viewing, his family held for Tim. He was dressed in the light blue tracksuit suit that he was saving up for.
1: No. <laughs>
0: the front row at his uh, funeral was reserved for Tim's hockey team as well. And there's a picture of, um, like, the pallbearers at his funeral and it's like so fucking sad it's just like these 11 year olds all dressed in tuxedos carrying out
1: the best casket of their best friend me.
0: this is also just kind of like a side note but so around the time of the king murder the robinsons jill robinson's parents were feeling that like her case had all been but forgotten and the media wasn't covering it up I mean, the media wasn't covering enough anymore, Mm -hmm. and Carol Robinson was also upset with the fact that, like, there was negative media coverage, that insinuating that she was in a fight with Jill when she left, which, like... this
1: is the one about the tampon?
0: (laughs) That was... That was my theory, yeah. Okay, so... (laughs) Jill, Jill Robinson... was the one that was in the bad mood, and she was arguing with her mother about baking the biscuits.
1: And there was the cop.
0: Yeah, her mother's boyfriend was yes. a cop and, like, recommended... He was like, calm down. Yes, Like, yes, that honey. Yes. Like,
1: and then she was never seen again.
0: Correct. And that would happen, I think, so after her, there was Christine Mahalik, and then there was Timothy King. So she was the second victim.
1: So they were trying to make the mom look negative, like saying, well, you got in a fight with her, so she ran away. Like,
0: and that's another thing. Yeah. My next note was it was also portrayed that she was running away, which was never believed by either one of her no. parents. But this is just early indication of an incompetent task force that mm-hmm. was handling this case. Great. The police task force that was created to solve this case had police from all of the surrounding districts and all of the districts that there was a body taken out and all of the districts that a child went missing from or a body was found in. Some of the programs that emerged from their task force that is kind of was trying to protect children and solve this case and just make children feel safer. One of them was Operation Lore And it was implemented in schools where students can report any suspicious activity where adults were trying to lure children. Mm -hmm. That one seemed pretty good. This next one is like, "Mm." (laughs) (laughs) what? The Helping Hand program was a program that mass produced flyers of a white hand for people to put in their windows as a message to children in danger that their homes was a a possible safe haven. So if they were like in trouble on the street. They could see the white hand and be like, okay, I can knock on their door and it's safe.
1: That is kind of a, I bet not a lot of people did that. But, I mean, my point but is, okay.
0: my point with that is like, if you were a killer or a pedophile, you could put it in your yeah, window.
1: Exactly.
0: So that's my yeah, that issue. The Seems a little sketchy. I'm mean, like, is that any, all you got?
1: Any other program? Task
0: force. Those are the two that were like... The those are just two. I mean, not the main programs, oh, yeah. but those are just two of note. Tim's investigation mm-hmm. would bring in over 6,000 tips, though. So they had a lot of work to do with um, investigating those tips. They'd followed up on a lot of them and looked into a lot of sexual predators. Wow. Some resolution before we get into the clusterfuck that is this investigation and in case. The two order girls that we discussed in the prior episode. Cynthia Cadieu. And Sheila Schrock. Both had their killers apprehended in 1978. Both of their killers were sentenced to life in prison. And then were not connected to the Oakland County Tower Killer case. So that's why I kind of hinted to that in the first episode. Oh. But it all happened in the same 13 months, so it's still fucking... So they
1: were... They already had... Were they separate killers?
0: Yes. Two separate killers. Unrelated. Like, both of them had... Both of them had separate killers. Were proven
1: guilty to killing them.
0: Correct. And they were sentenced in nineteen seventy-eight the year two years after the murders.
1: But coincidentally, they had some of the same patterns as these other kids.
0: They fit the pattern less. Like I they weren't included in any of the patterns. Oh. The reason not I included the public
1: dumping, the clean body what was
0: The area? Reason I included them is because they were still children that were murdered in the thirteen months in the same area. Right. It was all happening in the same area. Exact times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Some of them, I think they were both sexually assaulted, but I don't think they had other aspects that linked them to the Oakland County child killer. Another thing that police did to look for the killer was to put ads in the newspaper where they were like posing to be like a company that would cater to pedophiles. You know what I mean? They were like trying to lure in pedophiles to respond Um, to the ad and kind of like fall for like a really dumb trap. And they didn't. But what they did get was parents offering to sell their children into that business for $5. What? Are you kidding me? No, that's, that's something that actually happened.
1: That's disgusting.
0: And that's, we're just getting started. So Dr. Danto... An apparently somewhat well-known psychologist at the time in the area said that he received a letter from a man named Alan after the newspaper ad was submitted. Mm -hmm. It is from someone who says that they were living with the killer and has taken part in some of the events but was never there when the uh, killing of the children took place. So they followed up on this and they staged a phone call with him and they planned to meet at a bar so they could get uh, more information on it. Okay but uh, Alan never showed up. The FBI compared the letter in the call transcript and they determined that it was the same person based on the syntax and the language and the writing. But, and he had, they referenced his highly distraught mental state and they assumed he was between 25 and 30 of Latin descent, probably Spanish. And this last part just made me like scratch my head and be like, all right, FBI in the seventies. It was also concluded that he was likely the female counterpart to a homosexual relationship. I'm like, just say he was gay. Wait. I'm like, is that supposed to mean he was what? the bottom? Or like Is that like what is it, the
1: like the, fem- the girly one? Like, <laughs> that's what what are you saying? Like, like, like the or...
0: female counterpart. Like, okay. okay. Like,
1: You're trying to make it all scientific and shit.
0: No, just trying to make it like, fucking homophobic. Like there's two men. If it's a gay relationship, it's two men. There's no female counterpart. I just <laughs> <laughs> I just took a little, a little issue with that part that I found.
1: Yeah. That's weird.
0: That's just the seventies the for you. But aside from what I really talked about just then, the few programs, the newspaper ad, following up on all the tips with Tim King. Mm-hmm. Nothing. The Oakland County Sheriff gave a speech where he blames failure of cooperation and coordination between police agencies. Information was not shared between them. Officers would hog what they had to themselves in hope that they could be the ones to crack the case and take the glory. By March of 1978, the task force had received over 15,000 tips and cleared uh, over 9,000 of them. So they, like, were at least clearing tips, but we'll get into it. Like, were they actually clearing them? Yeah. Were they just saying they were cleared? The task force slowly runs out of federal funding and found funding through various police departments throughout Michigan, and mainly the ones that were obviously involved in the case. But there was um, uh, some donors that came from, like, outside counties as well. So in 19... in December of 1978, they planned to move the task force to the Michigan State Police Office District Headquarters. This may not seem like a big deal, but this what comes next, just note that it comes right after it is moved to the State Police mm-hmm. Headquarters. So they release a statement about how they are sorry that they had not caught the killer and they still consider the file open. And they say that they would meet every two weeks for several months to give new tasks to officers. He concludes the letter with thanking all of the families' help for, for thanking all of the families for their help in the investigation. And the quote from the leader of the task force is: "From all of us at the task force, good luck and may God be with you." So this mm-hmm. abrupt halt of the task force was not really surprising to many. They kind of believed that they were just following up on everything that they could and they had nothing. But it was pretty, pretty abrupt. Like December of 1978, like that's just a year later. I don't know. I don't know how long investigations normally take though, but for four children that you were connecting to a serial killer, I feel like you would maybe look a little longer.
1: Exactly.
0: So after this hasty rap Quotes from the task force followed a pretty odd pattern. The task force would repeatedly tell the media that it was hypothetically taken care of, the case. So three officers, including the the commander of the task force, all spun a theory that the killer had been committed to a mental institution by their wealthy family, so they saw no reason to prosecute them. What? Second in command and the successor of the task force all back up the commander of the task force. This is theory. On December 11th, 1978, there's a quote. It is bitterly disappointing to work so hard without finding the one tip, the one name, the one shred of evidence that would, make, that would put a maniac in prison. There are crimes that are just not going to be solved. If you're a professional, you'll realize that. I don't know of anything we didn't do except for the one obvious thing: we didn't solve these crimes. It's just that simple. That was the task force commander. If I had to pin it down, I would guess that he is in an institution or he is dead, but I wouldn't put ten cents on it. Like that's just like, um. So do you think Absolutely. that, or do you not? Like, and the fact that they there's like no like solid resolution. He's just giving this vague. Like we think I he's probably
1: like but... yeah,
0: and we think he's probably locked up in a menstru- in a mental Where institution somewhere.
1: Great outlook.
0: <laughs> they give this theory to multiple news outlets and it is ran through the media and reported numerous times through summer of 1978 and December of that year. Mm-hmm. But it would take decades before the victims of the families would be able to realize how much, the tr- how much truth was really in that story. Mm. Before I get into the next part, I wanted to give a trigger warning. I'm going to start talking about some very sickening topics, including child molestation, child pornography, and predatory grooming. This case required looking into thousands of pedophiles and sex offenders, so it was bound to turn up some ugly shit. This is not to say that the Oakland County child killer case was what caused all of this to come crashing down, but I wanted to paint a picture of what it was like in the 70s in this regard. So for the time being, we're going to be speaking about 1970s in general until I uh, start to give specific dates again. Okay. Once again, trigger warning, it's gonna get pretty heavy for a little bit. So in the 1970s, child pornography was a highly organized and profitable industry. Filming took place in basements of homes in the suburbs. Exploiters ranged from blue collar workers to prominent businessmen and even numerous politicians and clerks. Dennis Hastert, I might be pronouncing his last name wrong, the 51st Speaker of the House from 1999 to 2007, assaulted boys on the wrestling team he coached in 1980. Chris. So like, the person before Nancy Pelosi, and he was fucking assaulting boys in nineteen eighties before he got his position in the White House. This is just position in Congress. Sorry, excuse me. What? <laughs> <laughs> You're talking quiet this I, time. I just
1: said but whatever. But... <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs>
0: In early 1976, the same year the killing started, the child porn industry took off with the importation of child porn from Europe. But when it was from Europe, it was common to use adults who would like who could pass for children and like act like they were children.
1: So back in the 70s, it would have been pictures in the mail or Polaroids.
0: Dead videos, too. Yeah, they just didn't have like pornhub.com but they still had videos <gasps> I know that but we'll, we'll get into it
1: cause there's no deep web back then and shit. yeah
0: like just Obvious take sort of the internet things. out of it and they like, still have everything the out. the real
1: life deep web
0: <laughs> but as I was saying it was common in Europe to use adults that like, could pass for children and like act like they were children and qu- call it quote-unquote child porn, which is like still pretty fucking disgusting. Mm-hmm. But what happened in the United States is far worse, and it is inspired by it. In the span of 18 months, the U.S. industry began producing over 200 pornographic magazines. Trigger warning, these names are disgusting. And I'm going to read some of them just to get them ingrained into your head like they're ingrained into mine. So these were the th- magazines that were being produced in the seventies that contained child porn. Children love torrid tots, succulent youth, and lolly tots is just some of the examples that were going. No, giving.
1: that's not real. What the f- fuck? That's disgusting.
0: The makers of these disgusting magazines and films were making a metric shit ton of money. A metric shit ton. I liked the, the calculations. Promise.
1: So that means there's a lot of people buying these.
0: A lot of rich people. Adults were able to groom children by paying them upwards of a thousand dollars a week, $5,000 a week in today's money and $2,600 a year today. So like, that's like making six figures a year. Tell me what kid wouldn't want to do that. If they're being groomed by a child. I mean, if they're being groomed by an adult, you know what I mean? Like, they're offering them money. You annually you look up to adults like, as authority figures. So. In LA, mm-hmm. a 12-year-old boy reported making $1,000 every day working as a prostitute. There was also a like shocking lack of protection for children from sexual abuse at this time. Outside of the Juvenile Delinquency Act, which was designed to punish runaways and truancy, there were no federal protections for children.
1: Really?
0: There's a few, I think I have a few examples throughout this case of like some very like smack on the wrist type deals for pretty fucked up things. A lot of the time children were discovered in the industry by police and they were unwilling to talk due to a sense of loyalty to the uh, adults grooming them. Mm. A lot of them were rich guys who were able to buy their victims nice cars, motorcycles, and other expensive gifts. Predators were going to target individuals that they saw as vulnerable, so these men knew that they had their financial power and clearly used it to their advantage in more than one ways in this case. A lot of them were reported to be runaways, but as we already touched on, parents were more than willing to sell them. Just
1: give them for $5.
0: The total number of children estimated to be involved in the child porn boom of the 70s is over 100,000. Say that again. The total number of children estimated to be involved in the child porn boom of the 1970s in the United States is over 100,000. Just let that sink in. I've never heard about this before. I'm in shock.
1: I heard goosebumps.
0: Disgusting. I literally had to Google.
1: Imagine that now.
0: I had to Google before I like put this in like the like podcast notes officially. I was like, is that even possible? I was like, I looked up the population and it was 200 million. So yeah, it's damn well possible. And it's disgusting.
1: And that was just in the U.S.?
0: So yeah, this is really we're not talking about. Well, yeah, this is just the U.S. That That's, number, that just, number. Yeah, but we're not talking about Michigan, or the Oakland County child right killers now it's just right now. Yes,
1: seventies pornography.
0: But so, yeah, let's bring it all back, honey. In summer of nineteen seventy-six, the same year the Oakland County child killers began, a gym teacher at a Catholic school was arrested in a connection to the Oakland County child killer case. Ooh. So very early on, before the last two victims.
1: Really? And you were at a Catholic school?
0: Hmm. 29 years okay. old, Jerry Richards was a married father of two. Okay. And he was boosting his teaching salary by selling child porn. When he takes the plea deal to provide information after he was arrested, he provides the name of... Wealthy real estate executive Francis Sheldon, Hmm. who had purchased North Fox Island to produce child porn for the international market.
1: An actual island?
0: Located in Michigan. Oh, okay. Yes, an actual island, a physical island that he would take kids out to. Spoiler alert. Jerry Richards' home had photographs, films, and a client list. This caused a nationwide turn of attention to the issue, and numerous pornography rings around the country were closed down. But let's talk about Jerry Richards and this role in the Catholic school that he worked in. So the docuseries that I mentioned earlier featured two of his former students, and they came forward to discuss their experiences. So as I said, he was a gym teacher at St. Joe's Catholic School. He was also a magician on the side. So he would like use that to like kind of like entice the children with his magic yeah, tricks.
1: Birthday
0: parties. So he would use these magic tricks to kind of get on their like good side. Like, of course, kids are going to think that's cool. I mean, yeah. fuck, I'm 23 years old. And I'd probably <laughs> think it's cool that yeah. this guy could do a magic trick. But...
1: I fucking love magic tricks when I was a <laughs> kid. I would take a magic crap class.
0: We love it. I'd be the magician. <laughs> but once he got to St. Joe's. It immediately kind of brought some red flags to the students. At the least, they described him as off. So when he began taking over as the gym teacher is when uh, showers started to be required after P.E.
1: They weren't before.
0: No. So that was kind of weird for the students, but it's also like explainable. It's, it's not like. a normal thing back exactly, then. Exactly. But, but the fact that it wasn't before. Right when he started. It's clearly because he wanted it. One of his former students said it was especially weird that he was a gym teacher because, quote, he looked like he couldn't fight his way out of a paper bag. Like he was scrawny. Yeah. Yeah. I still thought that was kind of funny. He remembers that he was way more touchy than the former gym teacher, and he would pat them on the butts and rub their shoulders, which is, like, still kind of, like, a normal thing for, like, coaches and gym teachers to do. It's, it doesn't make it any less weird. Yeah. But, like... It's not like if they went home and told their parents about this, they would have been like, "Oh well, he's a pedophile." Yeah. It's... One thing that was extra weird, though, is the fact that he was like physically in the locker room when they showered. Like so, he had to be there like, like, every
1: time. That's just obvious. He would
0: also introduce his students, who he called Uncle Frank. He called himself Frank Sheldon. The man who owns North Fox Island. Oh. So he is not a. Teacher at a Catholic school. Frank Sheldon is a very, very rich real estate executive. He wanted to reward some of his best PE students with a trip to Fox Island.
1: Yay, we're getting on a trip. No.
0: So the students report going out to Fox Island with a couple of their friends in the summer of 1976. And they said they were super excited to fly out on a plane. It would be super fun. Like, yeah. that would be super cool, honestly, to like go into an island. like. Yeah, like-
1: with your friends, we're going chilling. Yeah,
0: they report having a great time. Said the food was amazing. The island was beautiful. Everything was good, but within an hour of getting there, they all went swimming at the beach, which is like okay, yeah. That's
1: like, what you do. On let's go
0: to yeah, the beach. Yeah. <laughs> let's go get our way. Great. But yeah. when they went to the beach with these full-grown men, Nasty. these ten-year-olds. The men said, "Oh, let's go skinny dipping because we're on an island and it's perfectly normal. There's no girls here, so In it's their fine." Head,
1: they just made it think it's a catch.
0: Well, the boys said, "Well, we thought it was There's weird." Some of them thought it was weird. Probably. They all—I mean, I'm sure they all thought it was weird—but this is their authority figure.
1: They felt like they had to do it, maybe.
0: I mean, it was just like I—it I, was like he demonstrated. He did it first. He showed him, hey, there's no girls here. Like, I'll do it first. There's nothing. It's, this it's fine. This is someone they look up to. This this is, is like... yeah. yeah. It's everything. Everybody's going to do it. It's fine.
1: Yeah.
0: So everybody was skinny dipping, too, which is disgusting. Ew. The boys assumed that they were protected because they were with their teacher from school. When they were skinny dipping, the boys say that Frank wasn't there, though, so now looking back on it, they don't know if they were being filmed by him.
1: The owner of the island
0: at that time, when they were going up dipping, he could be, be filming them. Yeah, because the boys were, recall finding numerous cameras throughout the island, just placed in like weird places.
1: I don't
0: like that. It makes you think what kind of disgusting things that these men were this, producing. Things
1: like this
0: happened. I know, and people like. People pay, that people were like...
1: pay to see this, people.
0: And it's not people that were like the slums of the underworld. It's like... You know,
1: these are high power. Freaking.
0: These are politicians. These are businessmen. These are pastors. Even
1: celebrities for all we know. like Absolutely. That's our, your fucking neighbor for all you know.
0: This man was a uh, gym teacher at a Catholic school with a wife and two kids.
1: Like 29 years old. Scrawny ass. Like not gonna expect that. But No, it can be anyone.
0: So the two boys recall a day where they went out on the island together, and they were just exploring the island. Boys being boys, just yeah. they were actually telling a story about how one of them found a snake, and they were like mm-hmm. looking at the snake for a long time, and they like lost track of time, and they went back and they couldn't find anybody, so they were kind of panicked. Do we get left on the island? Yeah. They were looking everywhere, couldn't find anybody, and then. Uh, frank and jerry got back with the other two boys that they were with and he said the adults were fine but the boys were changed they like clearly something had happened and something was wrong
1: like their whole demeanor was off.
0: absolutely yes the other two boys that they're referring to were not on the documentary so you can assume that they have more trauma with the situation and don't want to talk about it on national television so their stories are probably a lot more dark right. than the boys right. that came forward, even though these boys were still...
1: this was still horrible.
0: There was a story about how one of them got like rubbed down naked with aloe because they would have been like sunbathing and the teacher was telling him it was perfectly normal. And it's just like him harping and harping and harping on the fact that he's their authority figure in a trusted Member of their Catholic school faculty, so it's like they really felt safe there. One the of the boys talked about how he felt so privileged because he was a poor kid and he was able to go to this school. Was private school, and yeah. he was excited, and he was like, "Wow, I really am like excited mm-hmm. that I have this opportunity. I'm so grateful." And something like this happens. And
1: a lot of parents preach that, "Oh, I want my kid to go to a private school. It's going to be better." Uh, you know, like. They're not going to be exposed to things. It can happen anywhere. Exactly.
0: The public became aware of this man-boy-loving association and the international market for child pornography. After Richards was arrested, Sheldon fled the country, and the Michigan State Police got a federal flight warrant. What is that? Uh, A federal flight warrant is whenever a suspect in a case like uh they're suspecting them or they already have fled know. the country and the u.s is like we want the permission to come in and get who we want their criminal and we have the like it's right. a, yeah I see. it's a warrant to go and obtain a suspect or a criminal from another country. connecting this to the oakland county child killer case uh kind of They arrest Richards and they eventually get shot in after he flees the country. However, Michigan State Police maintains that the North Fox Island is in no way connected to the Oakland County child killer case. And these are just sick pedophiles. Could be the case. The individuals on North Fox Island not being involved, Michigan State Police lets the case die. But luckily, we have some truly amazing individuals working in law enforcement and criminal investigation. I mentioned briefly in the last episode, Corey Williams. Do you remember? Corey Williams. He was
1: related to someone.
0: Yes. Yes. So Corey Williams is the grandson of Lee Williams, who was working on the case and had a connection to Christine Mihalik's grandfather. So he was working on the case right when it came out and had a connection to the family. Williams, like his grandfather, took the case very seriously. He never let it go, no matter how limited attention it got, with little to no support from the state police and countless other cold cases to solve. Detective Corey Williams of the Livonia County Police Department, a large Detroit suburb, never let the case go. So we're going to do a... A lot of fast-forwarding now. From 1976, when we were just talking about the arrest of Jerry Richards and Frank Shoutin, and connection to the North Fox Island, mm-hmm. to 2004.
1: Okay, so we're...
0: That's a long-ass time.
1: Yeah, far ahead. Yep.
0: Where nothing has happened in this case. No movement. All that time? All that time. They're standing by the fact that the killer is likely an mental institution or dead at this point. And it doesn't matter because he's not on the streets anymore. There's no more dead kids. So why does it matter?
1: But it should matter.
0: Not their words, but... So in 2004, Williams was assigned a cold case that has absolutely nothing to do with the Oakland County child killers. And I'm going to spend the next 15 minutes telling you about it just to make this case so much more confusing. (laughs) This case was the murder of Xavier Gillard a cab company owner in the Detroit area who was murdered in his own garage in 1989. Mm. He begins looking into the case and gets in contact with a woman who says she can offer insight. She says that her brother, Jesse Delgado has a cellmate that she fell in love with while passing out Bibles in prison. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. Also, she's married to a police officer with two children So, like, she's like... So
1: she fell in love with him while she's married?
0: And passing up Bibles. That's really the Lord's work there, honey. Yes. She says that her brother has a cellmate, Richard Ludica, and she fell in love with Ludica. And Ludica was currently awaiting sentencing for several armed robberies. But he said that she learned of his involvement in the murder of a Detroit Cab Company owner. Hmm. So that ring bells for Williams, he was connecting it back to his cold case. In 1988, Ludica was a 15-year-old runaway living on the streets, where he met Richard Lawson. Ludica sold newspapers, and Lawson drove a newspaper truck for the same company. Lawson was a known pedophile, Ugh. who stood six foot six and weighed 250 pounds. Mm, so he's a, a big dude, intimidating yeah. guy, I'm sure. As a lot of men have done to a lot of children in this fucking case, he groomed Ludica, letting him stay at his house and drink free booze in exchange for sex. Lawson told Ludica of a former boss that he was under the impression they could rob because he took a large amount of cash from every night from the cab company. So he figured that would be a good target for a robbery and his new groomed teenager victim could be his accomplice june 19th 1989 they waited outside xavier gillers house for him to leave and they broke in ransacked the place and were planning to leave it as that just a regular robbery but all did not go according to plan and the gillers returned home before they could complete the job this is kind of sad ludica says He was paralyzed with fear whenever he realized they were home. And, like, you have to remember, this is a 16-year-old boy at this point being groomed by a pedophile. And, like, he is committing a crime. And he does do a lot of really fucked up things after this. But still, like, you have to feel for the boy.
1: I do. I do. That's sad.
0: Catherine Giller entered the house, who is the wife of Xavier Giller. And Lawson struck her and knocked her out. He then went to find Xavier in the garage, where he shot him with a shotgun after the robbery and murder, the two drove all the way to Atlantic city and checked into a motel by a couple of ponds. Mm -hmm. The next morning they left some of the stolen goods, including stolen handguns from the Giller home in the nearby ponds, and went on to commit a string of robberies along the East coast in the States of Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Pennsylvania. That is their backstory for their involvement in the investigation.
1: Are these bank robberies? Little they they were just, ro- I
0: didn't really go into detail. Yeah, it was just robberies. It was just little robberies. Yeah. yeah. Probably home invasions. I g- get, yeah, it's not going to be bank robberies with yeah,
1: like bank a pedophile with <laughs> it his GTA.
0: teenager victim. No. After Lawson finally got caught after the string of robberies, he tried to strike a plea deal with police by telling him that he has inside information on the Michigan snow killings.
1: Ooh. wonder what he has.
0: At the time, he committed multiple robberies. He was in PA. So the police had no fucking clue what he was talking about. And they were like, we don't care. We don't know what that yeah. is. Williams, however, knew exactly what Lawson had been talking about. And whenever he read that quote, it like jumped off the page to him.
1: Because he had the connection,
0: and this was all the way back in like nineteen ninety eight. Pennsylvania, nineteen eighty
1: eight.
0: Yeah, third time's a charm. Nineteen eighty nine. So this was quick math. Fifteen years later, he's reading this, and like he was offering up information on the snow killings in nineteen eighty nine. So
1: specific.
0: Granted, in this case, it's in PA, so he's like, okay, we can understand why they didn't make the connection. But as we'll find out, he was offering information to Michigan police even before 1989. Really? And they just weren't taking it.
1: Okay. I see how it is.
0: Williams is definitely taking this case seriously now because he was assigned this cold case unrelated to the Oakland County child killer. And now it's connected to a case that he cares so deeply about. That's not to insinuate that he doesn't take every case seriously that he uh, investigates seriously because it seems by this case that he... by what he's done in the Oakland County child killer case that he takes all of his cases extremely seriously and he's an amazing detective.
1: Yeah.
0: So he goes out to California where Ludica is being held.
1: Okay.
0: And he meets with Letitia, the woman who fell in love with Ludica while she was in prison. Handing out, out the bottles. Handing out the honey. Okay, but when he meets Letitia... <laughs> I don't have notes on this, I just remember he described her as like a very like like
1: Wait, earlier you said Latasha. Is it Letitia or Latasha?
0: Letitia. Okay. Letitia. Okay. I, I probably misspoke. That's okay. <laughs> <I> just... <laughs> Thank you for the correction. I think it's Letitia, but okay. it, Latisha, Latasha, she's matter. a bitch it doesn't she, matter. She was hand out because, Long story short, she only cared about reward money because she was, like, talking about reward money the entire time. And Williams was never mentioned any reward money. So after they talked in person, she was like, okay, where's my money? And Williams was like, there's no money. We never offered you any money. And she was like, I have been a very important part of this investigation. And I I deserve compensation. He described her as basically, like, a real housewife of Beverly Hills. She had, like, platinum Uh hair and was wearing, like, a, like, workout gear but she was like, I'm handing out Bibles and helping people find God and cheating on my isn't... police officer husband. It was just
1: like a thing. She just volunteered. Like, how do you even get a job handing out Bibles? Like,
0: She was definitely volunteering, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Like. <laughs> but this was not her job. She probably was No, This is me making an assumption just because I don't like her. But the bitch was probably not even working and letting her police officer husband she make saw... all the money while she was cheating on him. Exactly.
1: She just wanted to go see the prison. She probably gave him stuff, too, not just bibles.
0: But when Williams goes out to California to meet with Letitia, he also meets with Ludica. Despite being in and out of prison his entire life, he describes Ludica as pretty well-spoken, and he also said that he was pretty aware of the law, too, because he told Williams that he was just as culpable as Lawson, even though he didn't pull the trigger, and he wasn't the one that had the intent, really, in the crime. So that's, he's obviously done stuff with his time in prison. Doesn't make him a better person, but. William requests that Ludica would receive a lighter sentence in the Giller case if he would testify against Lawson, which he agreed. Williams also got the chance to speak with Richard Lawson before the Giller case went to trial. Lawson is a character and he has a lot of information. He starts talking right from the get go. He says that he was working with the Michigan State Police during the time of the Oakland County child killers and was basically going undercover, molesting children. What? And <laughs> getting like information and it was all sanctioned by the um no. Michigan State Police. That that has no weight in it. He did do he did provide information to the state police and the state police said that he was an informant. Like, not like a hired informant, but he did provide information, but they were like, in no way, shape, or form did we tell him to molest, molest children kids. or tell him that he was okay to do them. Yeah. Regardless, Lawson identified several hundred men that were involved in an organized group, which were broken up into cells, like factions, for each individual city. These cells would have a leader, second in command, and descending hierarchy, and it was just basically groups of men that were pedophiles and wanted to, either, in some way, assist in the pornography industry, or, uh, partake in like purchasing it. Those being serviced by this organization. Included local politicians, auto executives, labor leaders, pastors, college professors, and even a retired US senator from the Detroit area. Wow. And Williams confirmed Lawson's stories to police reports. Really? So this he was not just spewing a bunch of bullshit. Trigger warning We're going to talk about two of the individuals involved in the case that are not involved in the Oakland County child killer, but these are just some individuals that Lawson provided information that Williams verified. Okay. One of them was Titus Jones, who used his position as a property manager to feed his sick desires. He would arrange for his tenant's children to be, quote, gifted to him in exchange for paying their utility bills or rent.
1: And the tenants allowed it?
0: Their parents, yeah.
1: Their parents, I mean, yeah.
0: Of their children. But in some lovely justice, he was stabbed to death in 1978 in a drug deal mm-hmm. gone bad. Mm. I'm playing <laughs> I'm playing the world's smallest violin for you, Mr. Jones, Bernin-Hell. When his body was discovered in his wallet, there was a contract. Quote, to whom it may concern, this is to inform any and all concerned parties that I and my wife grant permission to his godfather to have my son live with him and for him to enroll in the school in his city. Mr. Jones will be responsible for the care of my child, which was signed by the parents. Another of the victims that Williams came across was a bar owner in the area and somewhat of a local legend because he like, rose past the abuse. And was able to make a a good life for himself. he was a victim. He was a victim, yes. He said that he was the son of a prostitute. And he remembers at a young age, his mom would take him to the dentist. And she would exchange for him to be molested instead of payment for his dental Dental care. Yeah. Yeah, it's things like this that make me wish we had a video because like... On um, the last episode, I kept saying, "I wish you could see Tristan's face." And now Abby's face is just like a blank slate of what the fuck.
1: I just like our parents, like as moms, like they would do anything to protect us mm-hmm. or love us. Mm-hmm.
0: Literally, Back in the middle, then, in the middle of recording the podcast, Abby's mom like called her, and was like, <laughs> yeah. "Where are you, honey? Are you she's coming like, home? Soon? Bring me a milkshake." <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: but no, like seriously for dental work for for an apartment like you would just give up your child like it's nothing wow it's
0: sickening it's sickening on both sides it's sickening on the fact that somebody's taking their child and doing those things and And they're just willing
1: to let them
0: parents are yeah
1: because they are money don't have money
0: while he was preparing for the giller trial Williams was invited by the Michigan State Police Detective Gary Gray to come to the reopening of the Oakland County Killer Task Force on its 30th anniversary. So, 2006. The task force was inviting someone from each of the local law enforcement agencies where there was a child taken or found. So, being from Livonia, Williams was invited. And for a short time he worked side by side with the Michigan State Police. But the officers, especially Gary Gray, this would not this would not last long. Gary Gray was not a very team player. He insisted in calling all the shots and would frequently criticize Williams for keeping open lines of communication with the families. Oh. So he was like, Why are you keeping in contact with the families? Yeah. Which is like Maybe he takes it a little personal, which I know I guess you're really not supposed to do in investigations, but I really think this case is a little special. Yeah, it's different. Gray also neglected to make any comments to be put into the book that I'm using as a main source. So he was like, I want nothing to do with this, whatever you're making this book. He, but oh, Corey but... Williams was like, I will tell you everything. Yeah, I want like, the world to I know. I am an open
1: book, literally. hmm
0: Corey Williams was a huge part of this book, and he was a huge part of the documentary. Corey Williams is like, He's let's on it. get like, this let's case good. solved.
1: Like, we need to stop.
0: Gary Gray also rubbed the King family the wrong way. At one point, he told the Kings not to talk to the media because it would essentially create a headache for him to deal with.
1: Right.
0: The family of one of the murdered mm-hmm. boys. He also told them that he was on the OBD policy. Do you know what that is? Because yeah, No, what is it? Mean? It's the one bad day policy, which meant like one bad day and I'm out of here. AKA, he was allowed to stay on the job past retirement with full benefits and full wages and essentially could walk out whenever he wanted and not ha- face any penalty for it. So he was basically saying, if this case gets too tough, like I'm not going to take it. And Barry King said, I just felt so insulted by that. It made me feel as if we'd be better off without him on the case the father of tim king can you imagine being a parent and they in and, and the lead investigator for the state police told you i'm on one bad day policy that i will just walk out if there's a bad day if there's a bad day my fucking son died that's a bad day
1: exactly what, the f- <laughs> what are they thinking mm. what the hell this
0: pisses me off. <laughs> oh, I, oh, I'm mad. What? I'm mad. I'm like, I can't imagine how oh my Corey God. Williams felt. I can't imagine how Barry King felt. No like, wonder he's Gary trying Gray. to get this shit out. Like, at this point, I'm like, I'm just as angry at him as I am the man who did it, God. which is like not not warranted, but yeah. it's still, he needed... Uh, oh, the, I, oh. I, I... Williams' boss, Livonia Chief of Police Chief Stevenson, said, be careful when you go up to Oakland County, because if you solve this case, politicians and state police will sweep you off the stage like a gum wrapper. That was his quote. Why? Dun, dun, dun. Why doesn't everybody want this case to be solved? I'm not going to... Well, we'll continue with that. For the Giller case, Williams also met with a woman named Faye Goley, and Goley was a former girlfriend of... Richard Lawson Mm -hmm. and Williams went to interview her in 2005. The book described Goalie as a short and pudgy woman, (laughs) which whenever I heard that, Uh, I was like, that's kind of rude. I don't don't think I would ever like to be described as pudgy, but after hearing what she did, I'm like, this bitch is the pudgiest bitch I've ever seen. (laughs)
1: What did she do? (laughs) What did she do?
0: So Goalie lived with Lawson for nine years And this was at the time he was driving the newspaper delivery truck that he was driving when he met Ludica. Mm -hmm. That was a perfect uh, gig for him to just find plenty of victims for him to groom. Goalie Goalie told Williams this. She said that their relationship wasn't sexual because Lawson was into little boys. And he would bring them home and she would take care of them and feed them while he sexually abused them.
1: That's sickening. Like, she had to take care of them... He just gets to sit on his big, he just gets to sit on his ass all day. His six foot five, 250 <laughs> pound <laughs> ass. Yeah, and he's not even attracted to this woman that takes care of him. Like... But it's like
0: she's taking care of his victims and not doing anything about it, this stupid bitch. Yeah. She's like, let me just feed and take care of these boys and not go to the police.
1: But they can get hurt.
0: They're clearly getting, tortured. yeah, literally.
1: You're not taking care but of
0: But listen to this. She also tells Williams that she thinks that Lawson is the Oakland County child killer.
1: She straight up just tells him that.
0: Just like, well, there's that information on the table.
1: Yep, that's it. That, she lived with him for nine years.
0: So, uh, alright,
1: goalie. Okay. girl. <laughs>
0: So this actually starts to link up Boston with the victims of the Oakland County child killer case. Really? Because she, she said that she thought that he could be the killer.
1: Yeah, but why did she think that is the question.
0: This is not a smoking gun by any means. But like I said, she said she w- would cook for the children. So Williams was like, alright, what well do you cook for them. And she said, I like to boil chicken and peel the meat off the bone. It's good for the soul. Which, lady, I don't think some tasty chicken is going to save your soul. You are going to burn for what you did. Some
1: unseasoned, nasty, boiled chicken.
0: But the reason I'm mentioning this is because in Tim King's autopsy, it was revealed that he ate chicken before he died. But chicken is also... A common. Thing. And, uh, well, you could hate a chicken nugget, McChicken. Like, we both like, just had chicken tenders for dinner. Right. Twenty-three so, like, year olds. You know, <laughs> in life. So like, I think
1: chicken's a common thing. Chicken. If he had like wasabi, like that would <laughs> <his friends. laughs>
0: that would be that would be noteworthy. Not if he had wasabi, <laughs> and goalie said, "I actually like to give get some sushi, sushi, roll it up, and give me some wasabi." Some soy sauce.
1: That would be a smoking
0: gun. <laughs> <That> <laughs> but chicken, homemade chicken soup is not. No. This bitch just likes to make herself feel like she's um, making chicken noodle soup for the soul. Yeah, when she's actually um, helping a child molester
1: find Molest. his victim.
0: Molest, exactly. Lawson would keep an important file cabinet with photos and documents. And Goalie said that he even returned to their house after it was burnt down to retrieve it. She said that she she said that he took it everywhere. But she could only recall three photos of a boy fully clothed laying on a bed posed in an odd way. Which isn't necessarily porn. it just in all of this context. It's like it yeah. mm, makes you feel gross. But
1: file cabinet was sacred to him. Mm-hmm. That's the and only the thing the fire she, he had to fucking go get
0: it. I, the only thing she saw out of that file cabinet were three photos of clothed boys but you don't keep a file cabinet for three photos. You keep a file cabinet for a lot more than that. Exactly. When Williams showed her the photos of the Oakland County child killer case, she said she didn't recognize them. And that was about when the interview concluded and she apologized for her compliance in the matter and said that she wished she spoke up sooner. And Williams, like myself, is unfazed by this. And he had a little, in my notes, I said, Williams snaps back. Because he says, you think that might have been a good idea? You really, you think that might have been a good idea? Because, yeah, you should have spoken. He
1: said that to her. Yeah,
0: all he said was, you think that might have been a good idea. But I'm like, go off, Williams. No shit. You should have spoken up. So all of the information that we have discussed about Lawson has clearly surrounded the Oakland County Child Killer case. But this is not all he has to offer. He says that he has the names of the individuals that are involved with the Oakland County child killer. And he is ready to talk oh to God. Williams and give him the names. Wow.
1: This but was in 06. Go
0: This was in oh, oh, oh 06, correct. Okay. Uh-huh. He was assigned the case in 2004, and by the time so it was going to trial, it was like 2006. six. Okay. 'Cause he was assigned to had to do all the investigating. Finally figured out to connect. About Richard time Boston. to talk. Like. So, but remember, I told you, in 1989, he was already telling other police that he... And they didn't
1: listen. and well,
0: They were in PA. But I kind of spoiled it a little bit because it's not going to be in this episode. But in the... Uh, there's even earlier indication of Richard Lawson trying to talk to police about the Oakland County child killer and it not being followed up on. But we're going to get into that next episode.
1: Oh my gosh. So now we're going to find out all these names and finally some light is going to shed.
0: I don't even know.
1: This is, I don't, what, like, I need to look up pictures of these people. Like, this is freaking crazy. Like, I've never heard a case like this. How have I not heard this? Why is this not more famous? What the heck?
0: Yeah, I honestly haven't really looked into photos, really, for these Yeah. Men. I need to put
1: some names to faces right here.
0: I don't like, care what these men look like. I know, like. All but, like... They're sick bastards. I care that these children, like, they have story. resolution. I want to bring attention to the children and, like, the lives of the children. But, like... As far as the pedophiles, I'm just like, I think they're important to explain why they're related to the case, but other than that, I'm like, fuck them. So this was a wild ride through the investigation, but the investigation is far from over, and in the next episode, not only will Williams be able to sit down and have a very enlightening conversation with Lawson, but... The King family receives a tip that will change the entire course of the investigation and also change who they think they can trust. Wow.
1: This is going to be freaking crazy, Patrick.
0: I hope you guys can continue to bear with me through this long case. I promise I'm going to buckle down and finish it now. I only gave one break. Because this episode was really heavy and the first episode was really heavy. But I think from here on out it's mainly going to be investigating factors. So we can we can just talk about it. And yeah. as long as I can get you in my apartment to record, <laughs> then we can get these episodes out probably within the week.
1: Yes, I'll definitely be here.
0: And guys, I originally planned for this to be like a two, three, maybe four parter. But honestly, it's looking like it could be like a four or five part or like, I don't know, like, I feel like it's just important to really hit all the details. And because like, it's been, it was like, 30 years in between the case and what we were talking about today. Like, I think it's important to talk about what's happened. It's like, yeah. it, this shit doesn't just pop up out of thin air. No. These things like there is a process, there is things that fall into place and small things.
1: It's very interesting to me how the yeah you explain the porn industry the child porn industry popping up in the 70s compared to where we are today with the technology we have i mm-hmm. thought that was very interesting yeah the you fact know,
0: yeah that it would be interesting that how it's still a multi-million dollar business even back then but sick people will always find a way
1: yep it's still the same sick people
0: so bear with me and i hope you guys continue to enjoy the series Before we go, though, I want to thank my co-host for coming back for part two and tell her I look forward to having her back for the remaining parts.
1: Thank you, Patrick. Yeah, I'll be back, guys. Thank you.
0: If you guys are looking to connect with me and maybe see some photos relating to the case, you can go to at podcastnau on Instagram. That's at podcastnau on Instagram. And you can also go to Facebook and look up the Not Adding Up Podcast discussion group where I post the case, case photos, and some questions. I like to interact with you guys and see how you feel about the case and get your feedback. So that is just two ways to connect with me. I plan on setting up more as we go, but since I'm just getting started out, I wanted to put that out there. I feel like my first few episodes have just been me doing the case and in and out, so I want to try to start having some input with my socials and where i can just kind of like talk with everybody and update you with that being said i hope everybody is having a great morning afternoon evening whenever you are listening to this and i hope you tune in again soon for another case that just does not add up